Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Andrew Conrad. I'm the senior pastor here, and um, many of you know that. Some of you may not. It would be great to meet you. Uh, and if you're worshiping with us on live stream, then I invite you to come in person as it's a very different experience and, and join us. We are in a series called The Good Life. It's a study of the Ten Commandments as blueprints for the good life of living in love of God and of our neighbor. And so as a brief recap of what we're doing and where we are, um, remember that when Israel receives the Ten Commandments from God at Mount Sinai, one of the things that we noted is that it is similar to, it's picturing a wedding ceremony in which God and the people are coming together. He's, went and he's, he's, he's gathered his bride out of Egypt. He's bringing them to his place for them. They are meeting and now they are committing to one another. And as they commit to take vows, these ten vows of their relationship, it's what they're doing. They're getting married. And so as that priority, then those first three commandments or those first three vows, God is saying, give me all of your love, number one. Two, worship me authentically. No fake images of me. Get the real me. And three, honor me with your words. And now four, honor me with your time and your trust. Follow along with me, if you would, as we read from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 6 through, I think it's 12. Here's the word of God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or in the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There is so much in this that uh, I cannot get to it all in a sermon today. And um, so I really want to encourage you to stay for adult Sunday school classes as we're going through the Ten Commandments 2 and kind of diving in at a deeper level and exploring it even further. There's Sunday school for all ages, so your kids can do it and you can stay for the class. I'm teaching the Ten Commandments class today. But having said that, that there's a lot in there, it's not the only thing that's, that's full. Your, your schedules are full, right? Do you... Do you feel like you are tired or weary from life? Do you feel like you are worn down? Are you thinking, man, if I could just get another break? Could I just get another vacation? Or maybe I didn't get one and I'd like one. Your schedules, schedules are full and your margins are slim. In 2014, the CDC declared that we have a national epidemic of insomnia. We don't sleep well. We're tired. 
And then, just this May, the Surgeon General released a report declaring that our country is in an epidemic of loneliness and isolation that began prior to COVID. It's not resulting from COVID. That exacerbated it, but it started before then. I'll read you part of what he said. Surgeon General writes, it is associated, this uh, epidemic of loneliness and isolation, it is associated with a greater risk of cardio, cardiovascular disease, dementia, stroke, depression, anxiety, and premature death. The mortality impact of being socially disconnected is similar to that caused by smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day and even greater than the associate, associated risk with obesity and physical inactivity. What our national health leaders are telling us is that we are tired and weary physically and mentally as a people. And while there are many contributing factors to that, I am suggesting to you today that one of those is because we have a failure to keep this commandment. And that if we did it, we would be healthier as people and as a society. This command is a gift for the good life. It's a gift saying learn to live restfully, embracing the life of trust and limits. That, that's the title of the sermon this week is, is to live restfully, embracing a life of trust and limits. And that's what this command is teaching us. It's telling us to do that. And so I want to walk you through three points with that. And the first point is this. Learn to embrace the limits of humanity. I think there's a slide for that as well. Um, learn to embrace the limits of humanity. So you are limited as a person. And if you didn't know that, here's breaking news, a newsflash for you. You don't control as much as you think you do. You'd like to be in control of a lot of things, probably, some of you like me anyways, but you don't. You don't control as much as you think you do. You cannot be everywhere and do everything. This is why you have FOMO, right, the fear of missing out. You are only human. And one of the things that you and I have to do is embrace our limits both in body and soul. In body, let's talk about that first. Physical fatigue takes a toll. It begins to wear you down mentally and vice versa, right? It goes, it goes both ways. There's a book written about this, The Body Keeps Score, and it talks about the mind and, and, and the body and how those things affect one another and impact one another. And what, what's being said in this commandment, as God is talking to his people, the Jews, he is telling them, look, you were once slaves without a day off, right? That's why he says, remember that you were slaves and I brought you out of Egypt. You once didn't have a day off. You once had no limits. No limits to life. And you were, for 400 years, you were weary and exhausted. Your only value, in other words, their only value was their labor. They were a slave labor force for 400 years for Egypt. That was their value. This command that God gives them is an act of justice and kindness. It's an act of justice. How is it an act of justice? It's an act of justice because what is being said, what is happening is that they get a day off and they have to give a day off to their servants. That everybody gets a day off. That there's equality between rich and poor, slave or free. That look, everybody, humanity has limits and is designed to need rest. And it's an act of kindness because God reminds them that he rescued them and he values them then for what? For their ability to, to be a great labor force? No, he values them with the dignity because they're human. 
They're made in His image. They have beauty and they have worth simply because of who they are, not because of the products that they are or what they produce. And so it's an act of kindness and reminding who they are, who we are, right? I mean, don't we need to know that? That it's not, I'm not simply valuable for what I do. I'm valuable because I'm loved. Is this not what our society is screaming for? Love me, accept me, approve me. And this is what God is telling his people is that when you take a day of rest, what you were saying is, I'm accepted. I'm approved of by God. And Marl Lindbergh and the gift to the sea writes, or the gift from the sea writes, the problem is not entirely in finding the room of one's own, the time alone, difficult and necessary as that is. The problem is more how to still the soul in the midst of its activities. She's on to something there, you see, because this commandment isn't simply about the body, finding time, finding rest, finding space. How do you still the soul? How do you still that incessant, ongoing drive, that quest for what you need in life? Rest is more than physical. It's deeply spiritual. Remember that God gives Israel these commands, right, at Mount Sinai. And then they, they are in this journey through the wilderness, like wandering around, right? Okay. And how do they get fed during that time? Do you remember? God provides them food from heaven. So if you've been to Sunday school as a kid, by the way, there's Sunday school after this. I don't know if you guys know that or not. But if you went to Sunday school as a kid or if you send your kids to Sunday school, they might learn something about this, that God provides manna from heaven. What is it? I don't know. It's rich crackers on the ground. Whatever it is, they fall from the sky, right, or show up on the ground somehow. But magically, every day they appear. And God says, you're in the desert. There's no farmland here for you to eat from or anything. You're going to have to be totally dependent on me. And as we walk every day... This is going to appear, you're going to go out and you're going to gather it, and you're going to gather enough for one day. And that's it, only one day. And you're going to have to trust me. For what? That it's going to show up again the next day. Except for when it comes to the Sabbath day. Because on the Sabbath day, I don't want you to have to go gather that. You're going to trust me that when you gather enough on that night, it's going to last for two days. Now, the reason this is weird is because God said, you're only to gather enough for one day, and if you gather too much and try to say, I'm going to hoard, I need to save a little extra for the next day, and so you eat all that, those yummy pieces of manna, whatever that is, and, and you're filled, and you're like, oh, good, and I have a little left over for tomorrow, and you wake up the next day, that's all spoiled and gone. It doesn't last because you have to trust and go out the next day to gather, except for this one weird day a week, on the Sabbath, when God says, it's going to last. Now you can gather as much as you need, twice as much, and I'll make it last for two days. All of that is an exercise with Israel, with his people, to say, will you trust me to provide for you and with time to stop and trust me? He was training them to trust him. It got ingrained into the rhythm of their life. This rhythm of trust was punctuated by a day of rest so they could gather to worship God. This is what Leviticus shows us, Leviticus 23.3. says, there are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, a day of sacred assembly. You are not to do any work wherever you live. It's a Sabbath to the Lord. So what he's doing is linking, right, 
this day, the emphasis here on this day, is it's, it's for rest and it's for worship. Stop, work, and make time, he's saying, for our marriage relationship. Remember, we're married. Stop, take time. Come, come meet with me. Let's get together. Meet me at the tabernacle. That's what he's saying. That's what this commandment is about. There was a newspaper article a long time ago about a basset hound. So cute and sweet. His name's Tattoo. And Tattoo um, was thankfully rescued because he didn't mean to go on a run that day, but as his owner was leaving, his leash got stuck in the car door, and the owner took off. Pulled out of the driveway, started going. There was a cop on the street that saw him, flips his lights on, chases him down. Car's going about 20, 25 by the time he sees the lights and pulls over. The cop says that basset hound was just running as fast as he could, tumbling, flipping over and hopping back up feet and survived with a few injuries. Thankfully survived. But don't you sometimes feel like that basset hound? Don't you sometimes feel like that, that you are just running incessantly, trying to keep up in life, tripping over your leash, and thinking, am I going to make it or not? I think we all get like that sometimes, and we feel that that's what we're doing. But here's the thing. The car is your calendar. You made it. You designed it that way. You're the one filling it up so that it doesn't slow down. You need to be careful about that and what you're doing with your calendar. In fact, you need to put limits on your calendar. Make time for your spouse, for your kids, and gather for worship. Those are things that are important that you need to do. It's your calendar. You're the car dragging yourself ragged. Do you feel like that you are always on a treadmill, striving to earn, to perform, to, to seek acceptance and approval and love, flipping through social media, scrolling, looking for what you want to see if you measure up to everybody else? Do you find yourself asking questions like, am I really loved? Am I accepted? Am I enough? Those are all questions that we all ask deep within our soul. And one of the things you have to realize that you must know is that you cannot manufacture rest. You can't manufacture rest. Now you can in some ways like physical rest, yes. But totally and completely you cannot because you cannot manufacture rest because it comes from a deep peace deep within you. And you can only get that if you receive it. How do you do that? The second point I want to talk to you about today is this. Learn to trust the Lord of rest. And that's on a slide as well. Learn to trust the Lord of rest. In Mark chapter 2, verses 27 and 28, Jesus has this encounter. Um, and the Pharisees are coming to him and they're talking to him and, and saying, hey, you're breaking the laws of the Sabbath. And Jesus says this to them. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. What is Jesus saying? 
he is saying that mankind was made first on day six, then the Sabbath was made on the seventh day. So he's Lord even over the Sabbath. What Jesus is saying there is that he is subtly, and maybe not so subtly to the Pharisees, they would hear this, he is saying he's Lord of the Sabbath, the ruler over it, because he was the one who created it. Now, you can let that sit there for a second, but get to the point of what he's saying is that the Sabbath then is for man. It's for his benefit and his good. Let me ask you this question, though. If God does all this work of creating in six days and on the seventh day rests, why does God rest? Does God need rest? Was he tired? No. God doesn't get, God's God. He's eternal. He doesn't begin or end. He's not sleepy. He doesn't get tired. God is forever. And if God does not get tired and he doesn't need sleep, then what is the point of the rest on day seven? What, what's the point of that? You and I, we get rest because why? Because we're tired. Man, I need a break. I am so tired. If God doesn't need a break, if God's not tired, what is the rest that he's talking about? The rest, the Sabbath, literally means to stop, to cease, and therefore to rest. So when God on the seventh day stops or rests, he stops all of his work of creating. And what does he do? He enjoys it. He declared at the end of day six, and it was very good. He sits back and enjoys what is. And rest, then, is a stopping after a work is done to look at it, enjoy it, and celebrate it and say, man, this is good. This is so good. Now let me ask you another question then. Can you think of another time when God finished his work and rested? When did God do another work and then stop and rested? How about when when Jesus is on the cross and he says, it is finished. Finished. Complete. Done. And God rests from the work of redemption. Do you see this, this idea of rest? Is that, yes, it's physical, and yes, it's about time and calendars and space, but it is so deeply spiritual that we must know that the work of God's redemption is done for us. That the Son of God is involved in the work of creating and redeeming. He finished them both to rest and to say that there should be great celebration on this day because God has rested from his work. And he invites us to participate in that, to say, celebrate for the work that was done. And the only way you can celebrate that work that was done is if you get it and you know it. Every other religion in the world is going to tell you what you must do to gain the favor of God. Here's what you must do. Here's your Eightfold Path of Enlightenment or the Five Pillars. or All these other things. Do all these things and do all this stuff and you'll get the favor of the gods and life will go well with you. Christianity is the only one that says, sit back and watch what God has done for you and rejoice in it and celebrate because you can't earn it and you can't buy it 
and you can't work your way into it. And you're not gaining favor with God by the little things you do. Say, oh God, look at me, look at what I did today. God's heart for you does not flutter back and forth with how good you are or how bad you are. The work was done on the cross. It is finished. It's complete. You simply believe good news. And that is good news. And when you believe good news, it comes with a spiritual power that changes you. Like, right? There's, have you ever been shocked with electricity? Some of you are like, who would ever touch electricity? Who's so dumb? I, I don't know. I don't have any experience with that. But occasionally, when I fix outlets in my house, sometimes I think I have um, been okay, and then arc jumps and through the screwdriver, and I'm like, ow! That power changes you. It affects you. It makes you move. Right? When you become a Christian, there is a power that comes that will change you. And it, and it will change you. And if you don't notice that change, it might be slow and enduring. It might be immediate and quick. But if you don't notice that change, if, if you don't know the forgiveness and freedom in Christ, if you don't feel that change, then, then one of two things is happening. Either you don't really know Jesus as your Savior. You know about him, but you don't really know him as your Savior. And if that's the case, then I invite you today to trust in Jesus. Because he has the power. The good news is powerful to transform and change your life. And you have to know that. It's so different from anything else. You're striving. The leash that's tugging on you, the treadmill that won't stop spinning. Jesus is saying, you know what? I'm for you. And I love you. Good times and bad times. It's okay. We're married. I am with you. And I'm keeping my commitment, is what Jesus is saying. Even when you've broken yours. Like Israel does, repeatedly. Or the second thing that could be happening, if you don't notice this change, if you don't feel like you're forgiven and free in Christ, is maybe you are a Christian, but you've become so worn down in life that those moments that are burdensome to you, the fear that comes on is, is winning over you. And you're failing to believe the good news of the gospel in that moment. You're just like, I don't know, I've blown it so bad. I don't know how God could still love me after what I did. You're like, it's just, it, there's no way. I mean, it, like, but you don't know. Like, it just, he, there's, how could he? I mean, nobody else does. Everybody else has rejected me and unfriended me. How could God still love me? It's a failure to believe the real God, not the fake image of God that you imagine, but the real one who is, who makes covenant and is faithful to and says, I am not leaving you nor forsaking you. There's a place, uh, Dane Ortland spoke at Liberty last week, um, and he wrote the book Gentle and Lowly that, that many of us read in our small groups a, a year ago, and, and one of our elders shared that video with us and I was listening to that and I was impressed on two things that he said. One of them he's, he quoted this, this part from John chapter 14 where Jesus is with his disciples and he's saying, hey I'm, I'm going to leave 
going to prepare this place for you, you know, and hey, where are you going? What's the way and all that? And, and later on in that conversation, after Thomas says, we don't know the way, and Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, Philip says something, speaks up. And Jesus says to Philip in John 14, 9, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Don't you know me? Even after I've been among you such a long time. This might be you. Like, okay, I've been a Christian. I've been a Christian for years. I've been following Jesus. But if you're starting to think that Jesus isn't loving you because you haven't measured up, you're starting to believe in the wrong Jesus. You're missing the heart of Jesus for you. Another way that that Dane said this was that, look, in life, if you're thinking you just got to try harder, I just, need a, I just need to be better at following Jesus. He said, no, you need to follow a better Jesus. Because if you think your relationship with Jesus is entirely dependent on your performance, then you've missed the heart of the gospel. You need a better Jesus. Jesus says the words that are on the wall over that door when you come in. In Matthew 11, 28 and 29, I think this verse is on the screen as well. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is gentle and humble in heart, lowly in heart. It's saying that he is merciful and kind, and he comes to us humbly or lowly in that he came to earth for us to say, I'm approachable. I'm here for you. This is how much I love you. I've showed up. I'm at your door. I'm here. If you believe Jesus loves and forgives you, but you, but you think he just somehow tolerates you because you're a hot mess, you missed it. You missed the heart of Jesus who says, no, I'm here for you. My mercy abounds. It keeps coming out over and over and over again. And I come to you in that. If, if you understand Christianity, but you think, yeah, I know Jesus forgives me, but, but and this is a thing that Dane Ortland said, but you're kind of bored with Jesus, like, eh, yeah, I've done that. So that's not a Jesus problem, that's a you problem. Jesus isn't boring. He's irresistible. Whenever he walks around the earth, he's, he's attracting people. They're, they're coming to him. He's like a magnet. If you're bored with Jesus, it's because you got the wrong view of Jesus. You're missing the heart of God for you, that he is for you, that he is good, that he is giving you the good life. If you are in Christ, he is for you. Now, if you're not in Christ, you don't have a good life. I mean, you might. In life, you might make a good salary. You might have good living and stuff, but you don't know this deep peace. And the eternal life that is to come will not be yours with Jesus. It would be in a horrible place the Bible calls hell. But if you are in Christ, if you know Jesus, then he is for you. He is madly in love with you. So he gives this command because it's good for you. It's for the good life. And it still leaves this question with the couple minutes that I have left. Is how should we apply it to the rhythm of life? The third point, last thing today is we need to learn to live in the rhythm of rest and joyful worship. If Jesus fulfills the work of redemption... One of the legitimate questions to ask is, does this command still apply today? And the answer to that is yes, in some ways. It does apply. 
in Sunday school, we're going to talk about this more. We're going to dive into it, some different views on it, even talk about economics and discuss rest. Um, churches differ on this, okay? There's a wide spectrum of how churches view this, but even within our denomination, there's a spectrum that's a little bit smaller than, than the wide spectrum. But here's the key things that you need to know. Remember this command is about two things. It's about rest and it's about worship. Rest and worship. Everybody agrees to make worship a priority. You must take time to stop weekly and gather with the church for worship. No matter, almost no matter what denomination you're a part of, they're going to say this command applies in that way. It is a priority that the church should gather for worship. It's why they all have church one day a week, usually Sundays, right? Some believe it must be on Sundays. Others say it doesn't matter what day, but one day a week you got to stop and gather for worship. That's part of fulfilling this command. The second part is all would agree that there's a need for rest. Some would say it's still a command that we must rest. Others would say it's not required as a holy day of rest. And there's reasons for that. But practically everyone still says you need time off because you're only human and you've got limits. So it's still all about worship and rest. And here's the thing with rest is in work is most of you get time off, at least a two-day weekend, usually, right? So like the whole six and one thing, you've got like five and two. That's not the problem. The problem is the weight and the responsibility of that work, and then the problem is how we fill in the rest of our schedule with so many other things that we have to do that make us so busy that it crowds out time that we have or that we should have to stop and worship Jesus. And that's probably a bigger problem in our schedule. We, we don't, we're not in like a, in a survival mode in the world where we have to go every day to gather our food to survive. No, we got refrigerators that keep it forever until it doesn't eat and it's bad. And you're like, oh, what happened to that? And we're surprised. Most of the world can't do that. But we fill our calendars with drama and music and sports and hunting and whatever all the other things we do in life that we love. And it crowds out the day when we should stop and gather to worship. So you break this command when you fail to stop for some period of time to rest, when you fail to gather with God's people for worship, and when you fail to find rest in Jesus, the Lord of rest. Those are the ways you're going to fully get this command. Let me give you some takeaways, because I need to wrap up here. Three takeaways. First, unplug and reboot. Sorry, I don't know why that got so small. I did that this morning, last minute, and messed it up. Um, unplug and reboot. Design your weekly calendar so that you unplug from work and sports and reboot with spiritual rest as you gather for worship. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 says, let, let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us gather all the more as, and encourage each other as we see the day approaching. As we see that final day of rest coming, as we get closer to when Jesus returns, don't stop meeting together. Keep meeting together. Unplugging, like a computer when it doesn't work, you unplug and reboot. It works for you too in life. Unplug and reboot. Stop. Slow down in your calendar and find ways to reconnect and find rest, spiritual rest in God. Some of you have done that by making your family take a break from sports and other things that crowd out your schedule. And you've said to me, it's like, it's been really good. It's been life-giving for our family. Like, we're just not, like, on that treadmill of going constantly. And some of you are doing too much. 
You might not be here today because you're doing too much. But you desperately need this time off to rest and worship and celebrate what God has done for you. You have to get a hold of your schedule or it will run you down and wear you out. And at some point, parents, your kids have to realize the commitment and choice you're making. That we choose to be in church because we believe it's important. Because God commands us to do this. But I don't want to go to church today. And I, know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. The, the benefit I had over you guys is, is my job. I'm like, tough, we got to go or I'm fired. <laughs> so you don't have that. Like, okay, but we got to go. But we should go. It matters. Are your kids, what are they learning? Are they learning that we give up church to do everything else? Or do they learn that sometimes we have to give up other things in order to gather with God's people? What are you teaching them? And speaking of what you're teaching them, the second takeaway is ask your kids, what's the most important thing I've taught you? And if you don't have kids, just ask yourself, or if you have a spouse or girlfriend or boyfriend, ask them kind of what they see about you. And if the answer sounds something like, hey, make sure you always work hard, make your own way, become independent and responsible, be kind and care about people also, um, you know, always try hard in school when your teacher tells you to do work, do the extra work, uh, when you're being coached, go the extra mile, do all that stuff. If that's what you're telling your kids, then reevaluate your parenting. I'm not telling you those are bad things. They're not. They're good things. They're even biblical things. But they're also Jewish things and Mormon things and Islam things. Right? To be good to care about other people, secular humanists say the same thing. You do need to teach your kids that. But if you ask this question and this is the most important thing they say that you've taught them, reevaluate your parenting. It needs to sound something more like this. You've told me that Jesus is the best thing. That Jesus loves me when I'm good and when I'm bad. Right, this is the song I had to learn when I was a kid, that Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. The verse says, Jesus loves me when I'm good, when I do the things I should. Jesus loves me when I'm bad, even though it makes him sad. Yes, Jesus loves me. This I know. The Bible tells me so. See, that's the heart of God, is that he is for you. He knows all your failures and sins. He died for them, and he is still for you. Your kids need to know that. The last thing, we're saying, well, okay, but... How do I apply this? I mean, I gave you two ways to apply it, and we could list a whole bunch more things I could tell you. Well, do this and don't do this on Sundays, and do this and don't do this. And maybe there's some practical things in there I could tell you, but, but one of the key things you need to do to apply this is not make more lists of the things you should and should not do. One of the key things you need to do is just enjoy it. It's just to stop and enjoy it. Like you soak in sunshine, take time to soak in the heart of God for you.
the connection between rest and worship is when you find rest in God, you know what you're doing? Worshiping. Like, this is amazing. You're stopping to celebrate how good God is. And that's called worship. When you sit on the beach basking in the sunlight, you don't sit there and go, man, this is so great. I wonder how I can apply this to my life. If I just take three more steps, five of this, two of those, a six-pack of that, I'll be great. No, you just you soak it in. You're not going, what more do I do to apply this? You enjoy it. You rest in it. And when you hear the command that says, stop, stop, and rest, what do you do? You enjoy it. You look at Jesus, the heart of God for you, and you soak it in and go, I can't believe it's this good. And it is that good. And so then we will sing a song like, take my life and let it be, Lord, consecrated to thee. Take my moments and my days. Turn them to ceaseless praise right because when we rest and stop it's a celebration of what god has done celebrate that together let's pray jesus i pray that you will help us to be a people of great joy who can celebrate and rejoice because of the good news of the gospel that you tell us to stop and rest because your work is done for us. Lord, I pray that you would also convict us, recognizing how we don't stop and we don't rest well as a society. America does not do this well, and we're part of it. Would you help us to take new looks at our calendars and the things that we do and the way we fill our lives to see, are we really finding rest? Do we see the good news that gives life and rest to the weary. And Jesus, help us to take on your yoke, for you are gentle and lowly. Give us rest to our souls, we pray in your name. Amen.